Welcome to Five or Flop, a podcast for the best and worst historical fiction has to offer. I'm your host, Grace. And I'm Erin. And each week we'll be reading a different historical fiction book to see if they're five or a flop. Our theme for season one is reading around the world, so two books per continent. This week we are in North America, specifically the United States, and more specifically, Florida. We are reading Erin's Choice, which is A Land Remembered by Patrick D. Smith. And let me first preface by, this is not my choice for being a great book. This is my choice because it shaped my entire goddamn childhood. So I had to read, like most Florida public school kids, I had to read this book twice. I had to read the abridged version, and that was in fourth grade um, because I was in the advanced reading group. And then in eighth grade, we read the full-length version. And the abridged version is about 200 pages. The full-length version is about 400. And obviously, for the pod, we're covering the 400-page version. The full version. Because we're grown-ups. We can handle references to sex, etc. Really weird references to sex, which I can't wait to talk about. Yeah. But apparently, so for me, this book is like stumbling upon like a forgotten culture. Because like I had no idea this was so integral to the life of Florida school children because I was not one. So I had a fun time reading this book. Even if it's not the greatest book in the world, I was like putting myself in someone else's shoes. It is very educational. And I can say for terms of historical accuracy, it's going to get a five on our star calculator. It is very educational. It's used as like a teaching tool in the state of Florida. Which is kind of crazy. Historical fiction books do not normally get to be teaching tools. No, no. But- This is what I'm very excited to get into and what I've been looking forward to discussing on the pod. So before we get started, Grace, how's your week been? Anything exciting? It's going well. And again, we said this before. We said it when we were talking about homegoing. We're dating ourselves here. It's the week after Thanksgiving. But I'm just very excited to be able to read fluffy, happy little Christmas books again. I did notice you mark one as you're currently reading on Storygraph. Yes. Well, it's, you know, the day after Thanksgiving. But also I've been reading a lot of books for the pod and I Mm -hmm. feel like they tend heavier rather than lighter so you know for the whole month of December I have a couple pod books to read but I'm gonna let myself read happy little Christmas novellas Hallmark movies you know I am in the spirit I am ready to have my spirits lifted so I'm Mm -hmm. loving that in the trend of the holidays, um, would you like to join me for my annual rewatch of A Muppet's Christmas Carol this year? Oh, I would love to watch A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Okay. Good to know. Uh-huh. Good to know. I haven't actually read A Christmas Carol. I really don't want to. But anything with the Muppets in it, count me in. Uh-huh. I've read A Christmas Carol. It's actually not bad. But I also really enjoy the animated Disney Christmas Carol That's where Mickey is Tiny Tim. That's a good one, too. Yes. I so- mean, it's no Muppets, but it's okay double feature perhaps oh yeah i'm definitely down okay let's plan it great fabulous what's new with me oh god i'm so busy lately so in our notes i just have work social media book talk etc and what i mean by that is that and i guess it ties into what i'm currently reading which is nothing but i get a lot of my book recommendations from book talk which is maybe not the best place to get book recommendations but i like the ones that are like five books to read if you love a thriller and they just show you the covers like those are great however my full-time job is social media and all i do at work is like scroll scroll on twitter and instagram and stuff so by the time i'm done for the day like i don't want to look at other social media and i want to clarify erin does a lot of stuff other than just scrolling She's very good at her job, and it's a difficult job. job. But yes, so it makes it really hard to go on social media after work. So because of that, I've just been kind of in a hole of, I don't know, I feel like in my free time, sometimes I just do nothing but stare at a wall. Sometimes you need to do that. Exactly. 
Exactly. But that also brings me into book talk. And that's kind of the main reason I've been using TikTok recently is to find new books to read. And again, dating ourselves. But this is right after when the new Hunger Games movie came out. And so I read Hunger Games originally in middle school. I didn't like it, the first book. But then the new movie looks really good. So the other day before I I actually went to Grace's house for Thanksgiving, even though she was out of town. I was and, not there. Me and her roommates <laughs> hung out. Better off without her. JK, we all, we all saying we missed her. Owie. But especially because we were watching Glee music videos. So we really missed you for that. Lots of a kiki turkey lurkey time. Exactly. But before I went over there, I just read a detailed plot summary of every single Hunger Games book. Wait, okay. So you wrote in the notes, like, you didn't even read all the Hunger Games books. You <laughs> no. just read a summary of all the Hunger Games books. <laughs> no, I just read a full, like, no, but like the full in-depth plot summary that like hits all the high points. Okay. So it says I'm considering reading all of them. So I'm considering reading all so, of the Hunger Games. Okay. Let me – I have never heard any of this before. So you only <laughs> ever read the first Hunger Games book. I read the first two and I don't know if it's because I genuinely didn't like them or because I wanted to be hashtag not like other girls. No. I understand that so much because I did that with the first Harry Potter book. Oh. I eventually did go back and read them all. But I like – read the first one and was like no absolutely not i'm over this and then i didn't come back to it for a couple of years so i get that impulse yeah so i feel like it might have been like that but also just like i don't think i liked it all that much when i did read it but now i'm like i don't know i'm a grown-up i'm a different person the new movie just looks like such a sleigh like she's just fucking singing songs i also listen so it's rachel zegler is that how you pronounce it yes she's the main actress and when my boyfriend and i were driving up from miami we listened to a podcast called La Princesa de South Beach, The Princess of South Beach, which Rachel Aaron Zegler, speaks Spanish. <laughs> of course, I'm fluent. But Rachel Zegler, she was actually the main voice actress in it, which was fascinating to look up. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I don't know. Because of that podcast, it kind of made me want to watch the movie yeah. and therefore read all of the Hunger Games books. I read the Hunger Games and I liked the Hunger Games. And when the prequel book came out, I didn't read it because I looked up what it was about. And I was like, you know, like, I kind of don't care anymore. Like, it was several years later. So I was just like, eh, like, I'm not going to read that. But now the movie is out and everyone is, like, super obsessed with it. And it does look really good. Oh, my God. So the I'm TikTok like, edits of, like, Katniss and Lucy – Lucy? Lucy Gray. Lucy Gray. Yeah, I am a big fan of the Josh Hutcherson renaissance that this movie has brought about, even though he's not in it. Oh my god, the picture of his face photoshopped to like be a town in Scotland. Yes, everyone's <laughs> so creative. So yeah, I'm like, maybe I should go see the movie. I really do like the singing. We have so, to get data scientist Ashley to do a watch party with us. Yeah. Well, She'll we were talking. she was into Hunger Games. Well, we were talking about watching all of the movies so we could just throw the fourth one in. Yeah, might as well at that point. Here's my biggest thing. This is going to maybe cause us to lose some listeners because it's kind of controversial. Okay. Everyone is thirsting over the actor that plays snow and he's not even that hot i was about to ask you what your thoughts were on casting young villains as hot okay like very objectively like he does look pretty good with the buzz cut like fine but like he's not hot enough that i that it like you can overlook all the stuff that he does like he's firmly like an eight i saw this one tiktok i'm saying how i'm never on social media anymore i'm only on book talk at this point but i saw this one and it was like these kids like in panem school in like 50 years after the hunger games are gonna like see what he what snow looked like he when he was young and it was like all of us when we found that picture of joseph stalin in high school stop and i was like okay that's kind of fair it was really fucking funny yeah i mean listen I think about that one photo of Joe Biden from the 60s, like, not infrequently, where he oh, looks yeah. really good. Oh, yeah. But I'm like, he's not – and it, it would be one thing if he was really hot, and he's just, like, 
nice looking, but I don't even think he's hot enough to justify. It's funny that you say that he's hotter, not Joe Biden. We're now back to talking back about to snow. Things. It's funny that you say he's hotter with the buzz cut because I have the opposite opinion. Interesting. <laughs> you know, different strokes for different folks. Exactly. And but that ties back into Elaine Remembered because the theme of the book, I don't agree with. So, oh, yeah, Grace. Different strokes from different oh, folks. Spoiler alert, Grace hates nature. If Confirm. Patrick D. Smith was alive, which, it's- spoiler alert, he's not, he would think that Coriolana Snow was really sexy. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the moral of this podcast. Yeah, and but I do. As we know notoriously, because she hates using the compost bin in her house, Grace hates the environment. Please stop. Do not out me as <laughs> I do use the compost bin. I just don't like how it smells. Okay, fair. I don't use the compost bin anywhere else. All right, so with that beautiful segue, let's get into the synopsis for Land Remembered. Please read it to me. I don't think I've ever read the synopsis just because you don't need it. I know what the, this book is so ingrained into my soul. That I don't need the synopsis. But anyways. It's very good that we're not both from Florida. It's very good that you have me as a sounding board for this episode. Because I would would hazard a guess that most of our listeners are not from Florida based on the percentage of Floridians versus the rest of the world. What if it was just like only my school that ever read it and everyone's like, what the fuck is she talking about? Well, I hope that's not true. Okay. But in this best-selling novel, I'm pretty sure it was only ever bought by Florida teachers. Well, that's a lot of them. Patrick Smith tells the story of three generations, so we're back to a generational book, of the McIvies, a Florida family who battles the hardships of the frontier to rise from a dirt-poor cracker life to the wealth and standing of real estate tycoons. Erin, let's pause. Yes. I think maybe you were going to say this. Cracker means something different other than the insult levied at white people. And I think this is actually where the origin of that comes in. But cracker is basically what they call cow herders because they crack the whip. Yes. So that's what it's referring to here. Yes. Want to clarify. The story opens in 1858 when Tobias McIvey arrives in the Floridian wilderness to start a new life with his wife and infant son and ends two generations later in 1968 with Solomon McIvey, who realizes the land has been exploited far beyond human need. The sweeping story that emerges is a rich, rugged Florida history featuring a memorable cast of crusty, indomitable crackers battling wild animals. God, this is a crazy one. Battling wild animals, rustlers, Confederate deserters, mosquitoes, same, starvation, hurricanes, and freezes to carve a kingdom out of the swamp. Kingdom is kind of an exaggeration, but okay. That makes it sound like Walt Disney. Yeah. <laughs> But their most formidable adversary turns out to be greed, including finally their own. Love and tenderness are here too. The hopes and passions of each new generation, friendships with the persecuted blacks and Indians, and respect to the land and its wildlife. And again, we don't write these descriptions. This is what Amazon gives us. Yeah. So that's a lot. It's very dramatic. More dramatic than the book. Yeah. And the book has some high drama. The book does have some high drama. Um, can't wait till we get into the characters we like and don't like. But before the characters, we have to talk about the author, which is Patrick D. Smith. The famous Patrick D. Smith. So he is a 1999 inductee into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame, which is the highest and most prestigious cultural honor that can be bestowed upon an individual by the state of Florida. And why have I not been inducted into this? Only because we're only in the first season of the podcast. I think by season three, I'm going to be an inductee. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't know if they actually have a 
like building where you can learn about the Hall of Fame artists, but I, there'll be a statue of me. There should be one. So Patrick D. Smith moved to Florida in 1966, so like just around where this book ends. Not a native Floridian. Crazy. No, but he's from Mississippi originally, so all of his books kind of focus on Mississippi and Florida with a big focus on the environment, obviously a main theme in this book. And he was nominated three times for the Pulitzer Prize, including for this book, which oh, I don't think was kind of weird. Yeah. Okay, hold but, on. So when you said before, like, oh, I think only Florida school teachers bought this book, clearly not if it was a Pulitzer <laughs> nominee. Okay. That's crazy. Maybe it has a bigger standing than I'm giving it credit for. I'm Googling while you're talking. I'm going to Google what beat this book out for the Pulitzer. I feel like we need to know. Yeah, I think that's important. And if it's a historical fiction book, we're reading that. But something I found kind of funny on this website, they had a QA and a section. As we said, this man has passed away. So he will be the first author we are not inviting in the pod because- Sorry, Patrick. Sorry, Patrick, you're done. But they say like five fucking times in this Q&A that he's dead. Question, will there ever be a sequel to A Land Remembered? No, Mr. Smith has passed away. Question, the next question, is Patrick Smith alive? Unfortunately, he passed away on January 6, 2014. But they like really hit home that he's dead. And that just kind of made me laugh because also he has some funky other bits on this website too, which question, why did Patrick Smith kill off so many people in this story? Because there are a lot of deaths. The answer is, Patrick Smith's colorful answer to this question was that he got tired of writing about them, so he killed them off. Which is totally me when I'm writing a story. They focus a lot on death in this Q&A. Maybe because it's a theme of the book. Generations come, generations go. They're trying to tie that into Patrick Smith's real life. Rip to Patrick Smith. You would have loved being a guest host on our pod. Or maybe it's just because so many Florida school teachers want him to come to class and they don't realize that he that can be. no longer. That could be it, actually. All right. Have you found anything on the Pulitzer Prize? So the book came out in 1984. <laughs> so it was either awarded. It's hard for me to figure out if it was nominated for the 84 or the 85 okay. prize. But the 84 prize went to Ironweed by William Kennedy. And the 85 prize went to Foreign Affairs by Alison Lurie. These okay. are not books that I am familiar with. I've not heard of either of them. However, for context, I would like to say that the 1983 Pulitzer went to the color purple. Oh, wow. So that's the that's the quality of book that we're talking about here. So I don't I don't see I don't see that in a land remember. <laughs> I know it's very important to you. It's but I do not see that quality reflected. It's important to me on a nostalgia level. But I'm going to guess your answer to this is no, but have you read anything else by the author or have any familiarity with the book? No, not at all. I was very fascinated when you told me that we were going to be reading this for the podcast. You were very insistent about it, that this was like the Florida school book. And I had never heard of it before. I'd never heard of Patrick D. Smith before. I looked up his other books. I didn't really expect him to be so prolific as he was i thought this was his only book no but he had a bunch of others they seem to have sold pretty well but i have never heard of any of them or read any of them my question is is the writing style as boring in all of the others as it is in this one i would imagine that they are quite similar because they're about like you know the swamps of mississippi they reflect the themes of like love for the land and the environment that's tied to like a specific state exactly. like i wonder if the mississippi school children have one of these books in their schools if you went to school in mississippi fiverrflotpodcast at gmail.com please let us know. know grace you want to give our disclaimer for this one sure so we're strictly judging the book itself this one is not based on any real historical figures but we're really just looking at the fiction that the author has created and we're not judging any 
real historical figures, times, etc. We're we're going off of the information that Patrick D. Smith has presented to us. Yes. And spoilers. Goes without saying. Oh tons God. of them. Sorry, I'm Googling something. There's a graphic novel version of this book. Oh, shit, Grace. We should have read the that. The Land instead. Remembered graphic novel. We should have done that instead. Anyways. Maybe we can post some pictures of it on our social media. We will do that. Great. We will do that. So for a little context of this first, some context for me, I grew up outside of Orlando in Longwood, if you're familiar with the Florida area. This book doesn't really take place near Orlando. It's like a little bit more south, like by Okeechobee into like the Miami area at times. So so it's like not where I grew up, but it's not far from where I grew up. And for people who are not familiar with the major, with like the development of Florida, which even if you live there, like maybe you're not. When this book starts, there is no Miami. No. And there is no Palm Beach. There's like There's nothing. There's like fuck nothing in Florida. There's trading posts and that's kind of it. There's no big cities. And as we read the book, we see Palm Beach and Miami in that order develop into large cities. So that's kind of the whole theme is going through like the development. But I thought how we could start out our discussion on the book is kind of going through each of the generations in a sense. Yes. So there are three generations and we each follow, you know, very misogynistically. We follow a man. Of course. So first we have the grandfather, Tobias McIvy. Who is king. I'm the best one. I love Tobias. They, maybe we would argue about the placement between two and three, but I would argue that they get worse as they go. Yeah. No, I would agree. The McIvy children, yeah. So we have Tobias, who is the woke king. He's married to Emma. Emma slays. And they have their infant son, Zach. Not Zach. Zach. Which is ridiculous, Which, but whatever. Anyways, Zach is my enemy, but we'll get there. Yeah. So they are in the Florida wilderness, and Tobias basically wants to start, you know, herding cows, starting some money. Yeah. And these are wild cows that, like, they're swamp cows. They're just catching cows. Which yeah. is, again, I'm like, I guess I never really thought about it, but I was like, okay, I never thought that cows just were wild and lived in the swamp. But apparently, yeah. Yeah, no, okay. they are. So Florida was basically nothing at this point. So he's going there to try and start, like, a life for his family. Mm-hmm. They come – he comes dirt poor from Georgia. They're basically living in, like, a little shack that he built. They're mostly eating wild swamp greens. Every so often they have meat, but not often. They are trying to herd cattle out of the swamp. Tobias ends up getting pressed into the Confederate Army to herd cattle up to Atlanta. Yeah, to, like, feed the troops. Yeah. So he's not – and not, he is – anti-slavery because he's the woke king he befriends a black man named skillet who comes to live with them and work with them he basically forces anyone who works with him to not be racist and also he befriends a group of native americans from the seminal tribe which if you're familiar at, at all with florida history they are like the tribe that outlasted trying to be persecuted by white people Good for them. So they are very, like, I grew up in Seminole County. The Seminoles are very prominent. Mm -hmm. But one of the Seminoles is Keith Tiger. And Keith Tiger is a very important character in that he never fucking dies. This is a generational novel. And Keith Tiger lives, like, almost to the very end. Yeah. Like, he's outliving the the grandfather. He's outliving the father. I don't know what Keith Tiger is doing, but he's slaying very hard. He's doing it right. It's interesting in that a couple of the books we've read for the pod so far, we have just characters who are there for so long. It's like the matchmaker in Snowflower. She was alive for fucking ever. Yeah, she outlived Snowflower. And she was like 40 when Snowflower was like 7. Yeah. Or like 30 when Snowflower was, yeah. It's kind of crazy. So that, the realism of that makes me question a little. Yeah. But anyway, so Tobias starts this 
cattle herding company. Yeah. And they start to grow more prominent. Eventually, Zach grows up. He kind of gets integrated. And all this time there, as Zach's getting older, he's, like, starting to buy land. And Tobias is very – he's kind of a socialist icon. Yeah. He is very anti-owning the land. He's he like, believes it is, that it's there for you to use and that God gave it to everybody. Yeah. So that you cannot own the land. You can only live off of it in the same way that the Seminoles do. Um, and he does not believe that man can own land. Like, yeah. when Zach suggests – putting up fences so that people can't steal their cattle. He's like, hell no. Yeah. We, who are we to put fences on God's land? Yes. And Emma is also there supporting him, you know, being a wife. All she really wants is a Dutch oven, which she doesn't get. And for some reason, that specific detail was probably the thing I remember most. That Emma doesn't ever get a Dutch oven. Yeah, and she really fucking wants one. Emma is not. Emma is a very nice character. She's not a very well-rounded character. No. She's the mother-wife. However, she's nice, so I like and her. And that kind of goes for all the women in this book who – let's introduce kind of the rest of the cast of characters and then get into the story. The, women, the story and how the women are presented. We'll come back to that. But anyway, so then Zach grows up. He's public him. enemy number one. <laughs> yeah, we hate him. Catch these hands, Zach. Because the thing so, about Zach is that he gets married to this woman named Glenda. Who's great. Glenda's very nice. But he cheats on Glenda with a seminal woman named Tawanda, who's also very nice. It's not her fault. It's Zach's fault. And he basically says, because Glenda has a miscarriage, and she hadn't told Zach she was pregnant at the time. So he said, well, she lied to me about that, so it's fine for me to cheat on her. So he, the quote (laughs) that I wrote down, because I was so incensed by it, because Zach has a child with Glenda, and Zach has a child with Tawanda, and they don't know about each other. Yes. And he says that, quote, Fate gave him two families. No, you just cheated on your wife. Exactly. Like, you try to make him sound like such a good guy. He's just, like, he's a piece of shit. Sorry. No. Tobias would never. Tobias would never cheat on Emma. Um, but then later the two sons find out about each other. And he's basically just like, don't tell my wife, your mother, that I have another son. And he's yeah. like, okay. And then never tells her. Yeah. So no one is allying with our girl Glenda over here. And who is just doing her best. Glenda comes from, like, a – not a city, but, like, an established town. Like, she – her father owns a store. So she comes from a much more well-rooted area. Yeah. She would have been fine, but she, like, chose to, like, basically live in the woods with Zek. So – and she and did not deserve to be treated this way. She did not deserve how she died. So Glenda gets gored by a bull. Which is crazy. Okay, so there are some whack deaths in this book because they're, like, living in the forest. And, like – happen you yeah know? some of them like emma just like gets old and dies yeah like and uh tobias like he just gets old and dies it ha- it happens but glenda gets gored by a bull and the bull stabs its horns into her like chest and like lifts her up it's into the horrifying. air it's crazy i'm nothing up until that point nothing of that caliber has happened in the no, book no this is not a gory book no um, it was insane i do have to assume that's one of the deaths that was changed in the abridged version i don't remember for sure probably i mean like i read a version of little women when i was young where beth didn't die there's definitely a version of a land remembered where glenda just like dies in her sleep or like you know isn't gored by a bull and this whole time while uh zach is taking control of the cattle company he's buying more land he's fencing it in he's pushing towards modernization and like a corporation but he's not doing anything other than they're still raising cattle. Eventually, they stop doing that. They start planting orange groves. Yes, that was kind of Tobias's dying wish, which is when they get hit by the Great Freeze in Florida, which was in like the late 1800s, and all the orange trees froze. But then he rebuilds it and keeps going. Yes, and he sees that the future is not – even though he's resistant to closing in of the land, he can see that it's happening. And he knows that the future 
is in orange trees and not in swamp cattle. Mm-hmm. Because this whole time that they've been still herding cattle out of the swamps and they know that they're not going to be able to do it for much longer. Yes. So then the third McIvy is Solomon or Sol McIvy, who is the son of Zek and Glenda. And he is the one that we get the least time with and he is the worst. Basically, he just becomes like Major an immediate capitalist pig and he moves from the orange trees to like land development. He becomes this huge like real millionaire real estate mogul. Because he had bought some land as a child for like, I don't know, like 10 bucks in Miami. Yeah. And it became Miami. Miami. So he spun that into like millions of dollars in this huge empire. He had a partner who he refused to marry and then she died. And so he's like, oh, well, shit, like I fucked that up. And then basically he just yells at everyone who's ever bought from him about being a capitalist pig and overdeveloping the land. And you're like, buddy, look in the mirror. It ends with this whole speech at the end about how everyone's so problematic for buying and developing the land of Florida. And it's so weird because, like, that's the most poorly developed part of the book. For the most part, the characters don't really go on emotional journeys. They go on physical journeys. And I feel like for this kind of book, that's fine. Yeah, like, if you're talking about the come up of people who are living dirt poor and eating greens out of the swamp, and then they have, like, all of these cattle that they sell, like, that's, like, an an intriguing enough narrative. But I think it shows... Patrick D. Smith's weaknesses as a writer because basically he doesn't show why Solomon is either like A, starts doing all of this real estate development work and B, why he starts hating that he did it. Yeah, it's like a flip out of nowhere to have a moral lesson in the book. Yeah, and it's not tied into the death of his, what was his girlfriend's name? Brenda? No, it started with a B. It was like Brittany or something. Let me look it up because that's, you know, we're not going to erase women on this podcast. But speaking of embracing women, the writing in this book is so stiff and old school. People don't really talk in real life the way they do in this book. Oh, my God. They can say, What we talked about about sex at the beginning, at one point, Tobias literally goes, wow, Emma, you're making my furnace heat up. Like, people don't talk like that. That was so funny, though. I did like that. It, it made me laugh. And like, good for Emma. And going off that with the stiff and old school writing, the women are just sketches. They're just... Bonnie, that's her name. Bonnie, like Bonnie the fact is that we didn't girlfriend. even remember her name. It's yeah. not good. No, I mean, and the way that they meet is she's his waitress, and he's like, "Oh, I need a housekeeper. Do you want to come and live with me in the remote wilderness with only me and no one else?" And she's like, "Oh my god, I would love that." Like, yeah, like that's not real. No, and like I get if you're just trying to sketch stuff in because the grander narrative of your book is like it's not about people; it's about themes, like blah blah blah. But this is a book about the people. Exactly. The theme is super central to it. But it's about the McIvies. It's the generational narrative about the McIvies. And the whole idea of the book is like the march towards modernization and developing the land and like a sense of longing for the past despite that endless march to the future. And as the book is reaching for that modernization as such a theme, your character should be modernizing and developing as well. Yeah. Bonnie shouldn't be interchangeable with Emma, who shouldn't be interchangeable with Glenda, you know? Yeah. The only thing notable about, the only thing that sets Tawanda apart from those other three women is that she's Seminole. Yeah. Like, it's not even her personality. And that she's the one who is fine with being the affair partner. But, you know, if the other women were placed in that situation, would they do it? Maybe because they are kind of interchangeable. Yeah, they are. And that's really sad because it's about the McIvies as a family, like, These women are integral parts of the family. Mm -hmm. I mean, though, I really got to say, like, there are a lot of talented and popular male authors who 
I think would just be better off if they didn't try to write about women. Yeah. That I wouldn't say like, oh, you just need to stop writing, blah, blah, blah. That I'm like, maybe you've tried to write about women and you just aren't that good at it. Yeah. So I think he does his best to do it here. Like it isn't horrible, but this is like a men's narrative. It is. If I remember thinking that when I read it in like fourth grade, I'm like, this is a boy's book. It is like, definitely it, a boy book. And so much of it is about how to herd cattle. You spend a lot of time herding and branding cattle. So that the nature aspect is obviously such a prominent part that march towards, you know, modernization, going from cattle to crops and oranges to land development. And the price of land in this book was so cheap. It made me really jealous because oh my God, Florida yeah. is so expensive now. And also when they were selling the cows, like one cow was, I think, like $12. And they were blown away by that's how much yes. they got for their cows. They were like, oh my God, this is more money than we've ever seen. And it's like, imagine a cow being $12. I'm like a hamburger nowadays is $12. Yeah. Oh my God. But so this book at its core is about striking a balance between the old living off the land and the new modernized capitalism. Yeah. And it didn't strike – that's why I said at the beginning, the we balance. are not seeing eye to eye because I do not – it's fine for me if Florida gets developed. The balance it struck was not good because at the end it has Sewell giving this whole speech to an audience about how what all, what all they did was horrible and developing the land was terrible and they need to go back to living in the wilderness. Blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like reverts all the way back and – I'm with Grace here. That development is not for the world. Like, I wouldn't want to live in the wilderness. Modernization development has to happen. Like, it's natural. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Even if it's not what I think personally, I feel like picking up a book and being engrossed in its world should be able to, like, tug at my heartstrings. Yeah. Do you ever watch something on TV and you're like, oh, my God, I want to live in the country and have a farm and, like, raise sheep have 10 kids do you remember make my own butter like of course you don't but you think that you do do you remember in early covid when it was like 2020 tiktok and they had that strawberry cow song and we all convinced we wanted to go live in a cottage in the middle of nowhere yeah i think the book should be able to evoke a feeling in you or at least sell you on its argument while you're reading it or be like okay like i see their side but i didn't really because they didn't they didn't tell us what was so bad about the development. They just liked their way of life as it was, which is fine, even though it seemed super miserable to me. It felt very like boomer, like back in my day, things were so much better, but not really giving us what's better. There's a scene where uh, Zach, Glenda, and Sol go to Palm Beach. And Glenda loves it. So apparently we're just disregarding all of her opinions. Exactly, because the women are sketches. Yeah. But they're like, oh, Zach's like, oh, this is so awful. It's a good thing that my father died before he could see this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what about Palm Beach is so awful? The existence of the city being on top of the empty land is just not enough because he was trying to say like that something about Palm Beach itself was awful, but didn't tell us what. And even because they were able to buy so much land over the course of the generations, the McIveys had a lot of land that they could have just, again, fenced in, which they didn't want to, but they could have fenced it in and then just left it open for their cows to graze. They had not, they were not getting wild cattle anymore, so they didn't need to do that. They could just plant their orange groves and keep the land growing as wild as they wanted within their own confines because they bought tons, like thousands of acres of Florida. Mm-hmm. But Saul chose to develop it, and that was not a journey that we saw him go on. Like, I did not yeah. understand why he was doing that. Because the whole time the McIveys are like, you know, they're doing vertical integration on their business, yes. they're making tons and tons of money. But oh, they so, are rich. Super rich. But 
you don't know why other than the continued pursuit of getting rich he does mm-hmm. this you don't ever see evidence that any of the McIvies would want to get rich at expense of their beliefs they don't betray their beliefs to get rich yes and then Saul does and it's you don't really know why no, it's not really ever made clear. A lot of soul section just feels like kind of rushed through. And it's the briefest part. We open the book with him, with Saul as an old man going back into the wilderness to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wilderness, like, they, it, they have a house, but, you know, it's, like, the wilderness. It's kind of like Snowflower, where it's set up framing, like, the character as old, and then it goes back in time. Yes. Which is fine. That worked for me. Like, yeah. it was okay. The journey did not reach the destination, I don't think. No, it just felt so thrown on in at the end to try and have a moral lesson that, for me, it felt, like, just performative. Yeah. Like, it didn't feel authentic to Soul's ca- character to give this whole, like, oh, we're all terrible because we developed the land. And he was pushing so much of the blame on other people. It wasn't when even, he did it. It wasn't even we're he all developed terrible. the land. It's you're all terrible. Yeah. It's like he didn't – he got a pass because he, like, was sorry. Yeah, but he wasn't even sorry. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, when Saul dies, it's the end of the McIvies. So it's basically a symbolic end of that way of life. End yes. of the will of the Florida wilderness. Which that symbolism did work for me. Yeah, that was pretty good. And I liked that because yeah. Florida is obviously has changed so much. Most of it during like the 1900s, like the 60s is when Florida really like boomed. boomed. Jinx. That transition from cattle to oranges to land, I think, was very accurate in terms of Florida yeah. transition. Well, we've talked a little bit about the female characters. Should we talk about Skillet? Yes. I think we should. Yeah. So Skillet is the only black character that we meet. He's great. He eventually marries and has children. Oh, that's true. Sorry. Skillet is the only black character in the book for like most of it. For like at least the first half of the book. And he is great. Skillet's very smart. He's not treated very well by all of the other people. Mm -hmm. He is called the N-word by not the McIvies, but by some other McIvy Related folk. Related people. People who work for the McIvies and kind of get integrated into their family. Yes. And he is not given his due. Skillet does get profit shared out, which thank you, Woke King Tobias, for profit sharing with Skillet. I don't think his percentage was very high. So don't love that. To be fair, I don't think the other like helpers were have high percentages either. No, but I do think Skillet should have gotten a higher percentage than everyone else. But he, yeah, his... There, it's just kind of the same framing as the women. Like he's not centered, which like he doesn't. It's if it's not about him, it doesn't need to yeah, center him. He's, but he's, he's not a side character. You're not getting enough depth for him, especially when you consider how the other characters are written. So no. like same as the women, you're not getting enough of Skillet. You're not getting enough of Emma or Glenda. You get like their actions, but nothing like. We don't have any skill at motivations. We don't have his backstory, anything like that. And then this next part, I'm of two minds about it. So at a certain point, Skillet has married. They have some kids. And he, this whole time, has been living and working with the McIvies and profit sharing with them. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of the book, he buys his own farm and leaves. And they all leave. And after that, you don't really see Skillet again. It's mentioned that one of the farmhands goes to notify him when Tobias dies. Yes. But that's like his last mention in the book. Yes. So you know the skillet's doing okay. And part of me, when that happened, I was honestly really happy because I was like, again, skillet is being the smartest one. Yeah. He's not working for the man. He's going to go build something for himself. He's like, I need something that I can leave to my children. Skillet's a smart man. Um, but then I was sad that, like, we just didn't see him anymore. I know. They just kind of wrote him off, yeah, which I like, didn't appreciate. I get that that's, like, realistic and that's, like, how it goes in life. But I wanted – I was sad to to lose Skillet, especially when we kept the other two cattle hands yeah. who were 
not as charming as Skillet exactly. was, to put it gently. And Skillet's also kind of a juxtaposition with the Seminole tribe, who, like we said at the beginning, Keith Tiger, he lives this entire damn book. He doesn't die. They are recurring characters throughout this novel. Yeah. And they, the Native Americans in this book are interesting because they don't, they appear throughout, but they're not like regular characters. Like, yes, the MacIvies are not interacting with them every day. They see them like every few years. And how they read at some point is just kind of like a quick solution to whatever the problem. Like the MacIvies are like, oh, no, our farm got attacked. Oh, good thing the Seminoles brought us more horses. Yeah. They trade with each other a lot. Like, at the beginning, Tobias gives them rifles, and they give them horses. And then Tobias gives them cattle. And then when Zek gets shot in the foot, they make sure he doesn't die. They make Um, sure Tobias doesn't die of um, malaria as well. Malaria, that's it. Of course, those damn mosquitoes. Of course. That was probably the most accurate part for me in the book was all the mosquitoes everywhere. And they were just, like, in swarms of bugs. I'm like, yeah, sounds like Florida. Yeah. What a hard life they were living out there. Bless their little hearts. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they were – they did do a little bit of that, like, magical Indian trope. Yeah. Because they were like, oh, the doctor, like, the normal white doctor was like, oh, yeah, Zek's going to die if you don't amputate his foot or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they were basically like, no, we will take him to the medicine man. Yeah. And then the medicine man just is able to fix it without amputating his foot somehow. Yeah, it's, Which I feel like is a lot of things, like, you can heal with non-invasive medicine, yeah. but I feel like having a bullet in your foot is, like, maybe not one of them. Yeah, maybe not. So, uh-huh. not sure how I felt about that. Basically, everyone who isn't one of the three main McIvy men are just kind of plot device characters. Yeah, and that's not inherently a problem. There is a way to do that, to just be like, these are the main characters, these are the supporting characters. Yeah. Like, the focus of the book should be the focus of the book, whoever you choose for it to be. Uh-huh. But the sidelining of the characters who are women or Native Americans or Black just kind of being sketched in partly, I think, belies an unintentional or intentional, I've, I've never met him, he's dead, prejudice on the part of Patrick D. Smith. I agree. But it also could perhaps just represent that he is not the world's most talented author. Because, like I said, even the main three McIvy men, no one's going on an emotional journey. No. They're going on physical journeys. There's, like, no emotional transformation taking place. So, of course, you're not going to get to know the women that well because they're not the ones herding the cattle. They're the ones cooking at home, not on a Dutch oven. And it's it's literally not on a Dutch oven. And it's frustrating because, yes, this book is set in the 1800s. But look at Snowflower. Snowflower was also set in the 1800s. And and that was about women's agency. And has fully formed female characters. And fully formed side characters as well. Also, the book was written in the 80s, which, yes, was a while ago. But But that long. No. And, like, you're comparing it to – it's a Pulitzer nominee. And you said The Color Purple won the year before it came out. Yeah. That's a huge dichotomy. Exactly. So I just – his writing style was just so old-fashioned for me. It just didn't It's a bit stayed. It's really just oriented towards, like, the literal action. Towards, like, the things that are happening. And you stick with that. That's how you, like, you do spend so much time in the wilderness that way. And that is helpful for the support of the theme. But we just don't, we, we're we lacking that emotional component that ties it all together. We also just disagree with the theme. Like, it's, as someone who lived there, it's pretty good Florida got developed. Yeah, they're not. Like, I do think. He's not selling obviously, it that well. Obviously, the huge capitalism push and the overdevelopment at the expense of the land is bad. Yeah. But that's not what this novel is getting into. This novel is just saying basically building up cities at all and railways are the devil. Yeah. Like there's a scene where they're building the railways. The train is coming through. The train is like honking its horn because the McIvy's cattle are on the track. 
and then the McIvy don't the McIvys don't move the cattle, and the train hits and kills one. Yeah. And they're like, "You killed our cow," and the guy is like, "Well, yeah, it was in my way." And he was, they were like, "Well, you could have stopped the train." And it's like, "No, you could have moved the cow." It was firmly your fault. And then they like shoot a part out of the train, and they're like, "Now we're even," or whatever. For like, for a book that's supposed to be about striking a balance between modernization and traditionalism. It does not. It's not balance. about that. It's about traditionalism. <laughs> yeah, it should be about striking that balance. Yeah, because if it's if they're saying like, oh, we shouldn't tear down all of the trees. You're right. I think we shouldn't tear down all of the trees in Florida. But if you're saying we should still be all living off the land and which hurting wild this, cows and not having fences, which is what this book is saying. That is what the book is saying, and I say that's silly. Yeah, that's. It's not realistic. No. So. Sorry, Patrick, it's a swing and a miss. However, I think you will be in Aaron's heart forever. You will be in my heart forever. And in terms of the historical accuracy of this book, which is a great segue. Yes, tell incredibly me. Incredibly historical accurate. So it's not based on a single family. Like, the McIvys, not a real family. That's but very instead, sad. But instead, it's based on kind of like a combination of other settler families. So it does, they are kind of rooted in the lives of real people without being based on real people. Mm-hmm. So it's a very accurate de- depiction of settler life and that tradition from cows to oranges to land development okay um, the orange freeze was very catastrophic in florida as were the natural disasters i've lived through hurricanes i was lucky to grow up in a more i was lucky to grow up in central florida which is less slightly impacted. more inland yes the events mentioned in that book in the book very accurate they really did happen um patrick smith spent two years on research alone for this book which okay he was I know we've criticized him as a writer, but also have to respect how thoughtful and how careful he was in the building of the history of it. Yeah. Um, I think much like Lisa Snee of Snowflower, like she really went on a research expedition for that book. Yeah. And I, I think, think that's another skill that we honestly haven't talked about. This is a great opportunity to do that is sometimes the research can bog a writer down. Because it's hard to be able to cut precious information that you like yeah. hunted out out of a book. And I think – the minutia is really well fleshed out in this book, but I think we spend a lot of time on that minutia. Yeah. Like, clearly the research that Patrick Smith did about, like, how you heard cattle or whatever. I don't think we needed like, all of it, you know? We needed some of it, for sure, but it's a bit much. So clearly he did do a lot of research because yeah. it's super evident. Oh, yeah. it's um, There was one quote I saw that by a Florida teacher, which is why I make all these jokes about Florida public schools. It is one of the most commonly used, like, teaching tools and curriculum items throughout the state. Crazy. So then that just goes to show, like, and I mean, Florida is not renowned for its historical accuracy in the public school system. Unfortunately. But this book goes to show, like, it is a testament to Patrick D. Smith's, like, research skills. Okay. So at least there's that. That... As you, like an out an outsider from Florida, <laughs> reading this book, it paints a pretty accurate picture for you. You now have a pretty solid understanding of the broad strokes of settler life in Florida. Exactly. And I'm torn. I'm of two minds about this because part of me thinks that fictional narratives don't really have a place as teaching tools. Part of me thinks that for a classroom setting, one that's not a literature course, that's not very yeah. responsible. And most public schools are not teaching historiography. Like, they're not being like, all right, now let's look at the time this book came out as an artifact of its era, you know? However, I do think, and I talked about this with Homegoing, that emotional involvement can really strengthen the understanding of history. I agree. So I'm I'm torn about whether or not I think that this book is used appropriately. 
I will say, at least for me, it was used kind of as a combo in my reading classes to also tie in what we were doing in history class. If you have textbooks, if you have facts, like 100%, yeah. like you need those too. It was used in combination. Um, fourth grade, when I read the abridged version, was our Florida history year. Ooh. Um, so like state history. So we did read it then, and then I read it in a lit class that tied in with my history class in eighth grade. Okay. So I will say I do, at least from my experience with it, it was used appropriately. That's good. I also feel like a lot of teachers may use it because fiction is seen as like much more attention grabbing uh-huh. when you're oh, a kid. Yes. Much oh, yes. easier to keep attention. However, this book is fucking boring. It was fucking boring when I read it in school. It was fucking boring now. Um, it holds a lot of nostalgia in my heart, but that doesn't mean it's the best thing I've ever read. It's I remember not riveting, I hate to say. I remember me and my classmates struggling through this one. Poor things. Poor little Aaron. Overall, I would say the historical accuracy is really there. And I think this is an important time to go into our star calculator made by data scientist Ashley. Let's go. And this one, Grace and I are definitely going to have very different scores here. Yes. So it's based on vibes, historical accuracy, prose, originality, and characters. Historical accuracy, I gave it a four because while it is incredibly historically accurate, it kind of paints very broadly on the stuff going on. Like the orange freeze is kind of skimmed over, but we get so much history on cattle herding. So the history is there, and it's all correct, but just what's paid more attention to in this book is not the most helpful as a reader. For vibes, this is where we're going to have the big difference. For vibes, it's a five for me, because while it is boring, this, I read this as a child, like it really throws me back. I to, love a nostalgia read, so I'm nostalgia. not going to call you out on yeah, that. Yeah, so it is vibes. So the vibes is a solid five. The prose for me is a one, because I was just, it's just so stilted and old-fashioned, and the dialogue is just... It's it's not real dialogue. I've never once said to my boyfriend, oh, you're getting my furnace heated up. People yes. do not talk like that, and I don't think people did in the 1800s either. Originality, I gave it a three, um, because I do think we see a lot of, like, kind of American settler novels. However, not so much for Florida. When you think American settlers, you think the pioneers the West. going out west. Yeah. And characters, I gave it a two, because some I really – like, I love Tobias and Emma. Everyone else was just so flat, and some of them downright villains, like Zach. And soul, honestly. So overall, it's a final score of a three for me. And in Storygraph, I gave it a three as well. So very accurate. Okay. So for me, for historical accuracy, you know, I'm a little stingy about that. So I'm going to give it a three. I just feel like it's not super all-encompassing. But what's there is used really well. Uh, For vibes, two, maybe. That's fair. You know, it wasn't a chore to read this book. But it was not an active joy to read this book. Yes. Prose, again, to – I actually think it was, like – it was serviceable. Yeah. Like, it wasn't the worst in the world. Like, I, I could read it. I like but, the descriptions of the landscape. Yeah. Aaron's right, though, that, it, like, especially the speaking portions were, like, not that great. Um, originality, maybe that's also a three. I think I would yeah. agree with you there. Characters, two. 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 Some of them were sketched in. Some of them sucked. So, you know, I have to say, sorry, that's a two. And so I believe that averages out to a 2.4. Yes. It and averages out. Why did you give it on Storygraph? Actually, I also gave it a three on Storygraph. So that's a, okay. That's probably the biggest gap so far that I've had between the calculator and my actual impressions. So correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think this leaves us with a rating of fine leaning flop. Yeah. I think we headed in much more anticipating a flop. But actually, I would give this a fine. It's yeah, not fine. on the high end of fine. No. But there are certainly worse books. That's like Fruit of the Drunken Tree was 
fine leaning five. Yeah. And we disagreed a little bit more on that one. This one, I think the only thing that like sets us apart is your nostalgia for it, which is yes. a huge factor. Which is. But yeah. otherwise, I think we mostly agree about the contents of the book. I agree. I, I, my nostalgia does not blind me here. I know what I'm reading. Well, speaking of knowing what we're reading, next week we're headed to Australia and we'll be reading The Cartographer's Secret by Taya Cooper. Yes. And this is more of your traditional what you expect out of a historical fiction book, which I think is going to be the first one we have like that. Yeah, we call it the white woman walking away historical fiction. Yeah, I feel we will post a picture of the cover and you'll know what we mean. Yeah, it's less reliant on the lofty prose. It's a little bit more popular. It's a little bit more accessible. So it's, like, it's an airport book. It's like if you think of like a middle-aged white mom at the airport who needs something for her flight like she would grab this yes and i will say this sounds very negative in our talking i like that's my that was my bread and butter for a really long time oh yeah it's not necessarily a bad thing at all those can be very enjoyable so we're stepping into a little bit of another era for historical fiction this one was kind of an outlier i think the first four that we did snowflower did have a lot of popular like hold but they were very, very dedicated to their literary prose. Yes. And I think the Cartographer's Secret were edging a little bit in a more popular direction. Yes. And in the meantime, if you haven't already joined our Storygraph Reading Challenge, make sure you look up Five for Flop Season 1 Reading Challenge to make sure you can read along with us and track your progress on Storygraph. And if you want to follow us on any of our social medias, we have Twitter, we have Instagram, and we have TikTok at 5 or flop underscore pod. And if you want to recommend a book for us to read, we have a form in our bio you can submit for future seasons. And if you have any commentary, questions, opinions, want to send us some hate mail, some love mail, make sure to email us at fiberfloppodcast at gmail.com. And in the meantime, happy reading! Mm-hmm.